The following talk is from St. Michael's Fowell, a gospel-centered community for Fowell, Teddington and beyond. Our passion is to see every life following Jesus. For more information, visit our website, stmichaelsfowell.co.uk. Well, do pick up a Bible, uh, which should be nearby, because we're going to have our reading now, uh, and you can turn to page 1066, very memorable, Uh, page 1066, and uh, we're starting uh, back in a series. We've been working our way through John's Gospel last year, we're back in John's Gospel now, and uh, Come to Jesus is the title of the series. James is going to be preaching in just a few moments' time, so John chapter 4. Verses 1 to 42, and Ruth, all set uh, to go on that. Ruth, thank you. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as he did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir... Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. 
The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? So they came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know this man really is the saviour of the world. Thanks be to God for his holy word. Morning, everybody. I don't know how we're feeling when we've come to church this morning. Maybe we're in a season where we're loving life. Everything's going swimmingly, and everything is brilliant. Maybe we uh, are finding things a bit tricky. Who knows? This is a quote from someone relatively famous called Bob Geldof, or he used to be famous. I used to work for a group called UCCF, and UCCF produced a load of kind of uh, bits of the Bible called John's Gospel, which is where the story is from, to hand out to lots of different people. And in it, we had a couple of snappy quotes of how people might feel, and then how encounters with Jesus might make them feel. And this quote did the rounds a lot in kind of our circle, so it's always in my head. It's a guy called Bob Geldof. We've got him on the screen here. He was once asked in an interview, do you know what it is to be satisfied in life? He said, not at all. I don't know what that would mean. I'm unfulfilled as a human being. Otherwise, why are these large holes here thumping his chest? Everything I do is because I'm frightened of being bored, because I know what's down there in those holes. I'm frightened of it, and it makes me depressed. It's quite powerful, isn't it? Everything I do, I do because I'm frightened of being bored. Is that not an amazing description of our age? We're never bored. I think this is a story that is perfect for those who are not feeling satisfied. That maybe we feel that life has got something more to offer. And Christianity says, yes, it does. And the answer is Jesus. Maybe that's you coming to church today. Or maybe you're someone who's come to church all your life. And you've been a Christian for a long time. You think, yes, I know that Jesus should be the answer and I should feel satisfied in Jesus. But the truth is, I don't always. And if I'm honest, I thought there was 
being a Christian was going to be better than this. Now, I'm quite often bored and unsatisfied. Surely, if Jesus is amazing, then my life should be a bit more engaging, inspiring, entertaining. But we're not, you know, we don't, we don't say that. Of course we don't say that. It would be terrifying to say that Jesus doesn't feel like he's kind of satisfying in that sense. I think this is what this passage is written to, to those two things. And we're going to dig into two conversations, two quite long conversations, one with this woman out of the well, and then with Jesus and his disciples. And these conversations are a lot like walking through a cathedral. You walk through a cathedral. It is enormous. It towers over you, and you get the shape of it. You get the sense of it as you walk through Imagine you're walking through a cathedral. Let's pick a random one. Salisbury Cathedral, random cathedral, the greatest cathedral in the greatest city in the whole world. You're walking through this cathedral, and you notice lots of details around you. There are some things you think, that's fascinating. I'd love to see that next time I come. Because you think, I'm now going to visit Salisbury every weekend for the rest of my life, because it's a fascinating cathedral. I'd love to see it a bit more. These conversations are like that. We'll get the shape, we'll get some of the details, and there may be bits that we might want to come back to later on. As we begin, why don't I say a prayer for this time. In the story, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Father God, we pray this morning, knowing that you need to help us for us to get this stuff, and we would love for Jesus to meet with us this morning, to show us these things that are true and are good. Amen. So the story starts with Jesus on a journey. He is feeling threatened. He's been in Jerusalem in the south, in a place called Judea, and he wants to go away where the Pharisees Pharisees are threatening him. He's going to travel up north to Galilee, and to do so, he has to travel through Samaria. Verse 4 in your Bible says this, now he had to go through Samaria making Samaria a little bit like, I don't know, Reading for me. I never want to go to Reading, but I always want to go through Reading to other places. I don't know if other people think that's a great train station there, isn't it? It connects all over the country. So Samaria's like Reading. He doesn't want to go there. He just wants to go through there. But actually, this place is supposedly worse, much worse than Reading. Uh, this is much worse than Reading. For lots of reasons. One, it hasn't got a very fancy shopping center in the same way, but more importantly, it's in a place called, so Samaria is in the the country, the region of Samaria, and the people of Judea and the people of Samaria do not get on. This is kind of enemy territory. The Jews had often looked down upon the Samarians, and the Samaritans had often looked down upon the Jews in reaction. The Samarians were people who, uh, they'd kind of, the northern kingdom of the Old Testament had gone into exile and all been moved across And then people from all around the kind of eastern parts of the world had been moved into this region. And as they'd gone there, they kind of picked up bits and pieces of Old Testament religion. But not all of it. So they kind of had a kind of patched together, not quite right concept of what the Bible said. So the Jews, for whom rightly, I think, religious and kind of doctrinal purity was really important, they then wrongly looked down upon the Samaritans as lesser people. This is not a place you want to go. Verse 5 onwards says, So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. 
It was about noon. Then a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Now he is sat down by a well. It's been a long journey and he's tired. Brackets. Isn't that an interesting detail? That the God, the Son, the eternal God, who became fully human, got tired. And he sat down, slumped down, it's hot, by a well. It's the hottest part of the day. Now, if, if, you're, uh, if you were someone reading this the first time, and you'd read lots of bits of the Old Testament, you'd think, interesting, a well. Because in the Old Testament, a lot of matchmaking and romance happens at a well. The well in the Old Testament is basically the Tinder of the ancient world, the kind of match.com. This is where people met people. That just happened all of the time. Jacob and Isaac, Joseph, lots of people. And then a woman turns up. You think, okay, what's going to happen here? Is romance on the cards. And basically, this first conversation reveals a woman who is deeply dissatisfied with life. Deeply dissatisfied. Verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Now, this is very controversial. Jews and Samaritans don't talk. But also, in this very religiously conservative culture, a man in public might not talk to a woman in public on her own. She knows this. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She was focused on these ethnic divisions that must have played front and center in their society. He says, If you knew who I was, you wouldn't care about that. If you knew who I was, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. It's quite cryptic. So she asks what I think is an entirely sensible suggestion. Verse 11, Sir, the woman said, you've got nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? There's two different ways of reading this as we've got the speech kind of coming back. And it's worth knowing that this conversation it's probably been abbreviated. There's a strong chance it was over a long period of time. And this is a kind of longish, but a summary of the conversation that was had. But as you read her words, you could think, is she being a bit bullshit? Is she kind of saying, who are you? This is a deep well. Where are you going to get living water from? But I personally don't read it like that. I think she's asking an entirely sensible question. She's just saying, look, I don't know what you mean. How does this work? After all, Jacob... In our society, she says, was kind of a big deal. Had a lot of stuff. He was the ancient patriarch. We all look up to him, and this is his well. Are you saying your one is better? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. It's generally true, isn't it, that when we drink some water, we want some more later on. It's profound stuff. I played football on Friday night, got very sweaty on the way home, drank my bottle of water. When I got home, had a glass of water, had another one before I went to bed. Guess what? I woke up in the morning and I was thirsty. 
You don't just drink water once and then you're kind of done for the month. Jesus is saying, you drink my water and you will never thirst. In fact, the reason you'll never thirst is because it's like you drink this water and then from within you becomes a spring of water that constantly replenishes and refreshes you. That sounds good. Sounds very good. The reality is Jesus is speaking in, and I'm sure you've guessed this, in a metaphor. He's not just talking about literal water, but he's saying just like people get thirsty and, and water doesn't fully satisfy, so too with longing. That you and I as human beings, we thirst for meaning, for joy, for purpose. We want our lives to count. And we kind of, we want to... We want to quench that thirst. So we go to all these kind of different wells to look for that meaning, that joy, that purpose. The wells of career, romance, status, material goods. And they do help for a bit. And only for a bit. We get thirsty again. And we thirst for something like a living water that will constantly replenish us. The internet's full of quotes of people who've had it all. And I said, honestly, it's not all that. Here's one. Jim Carrey. Funny guy. I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. It's not the answer. Even that doesn't satisfy. And the Bible says, do you know why that is? It's because we were made to be with God. We've got a divine, eternal longing and only a divine and eternal person can fill that void. Nothing else. We've lost the one that we're made for. And there's nothing else to fill that gap. We're scratching around on the floor on this earth with trinkets when we should be looking up. You may have heard this quote from the guy who wrote Narnia, C.S. Lewis, it's a good one. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We're all thirsty. But only Jesus can satisfy that thirst. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, says Jesus. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. There's a rich theme of wells and water and refreshment running all the way through the Old Testament and all the way through the Bible. And it's really clear from the Bible that the well and the water of which Jesus speaks is something called God's Holy Spirit. Christians believe that we've got one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying he can give his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to live with Christians and to refresh them, to be a living water that will satisfy. I don't think she quite gets it, verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. That's a bit awkward, isn't it? 
what is true for humanity seems to be specifically true for her. That she's not quite settled, she's not quite satisfied. Perhaps she's been searching for meaning in romance. She's had five husbands. The man she's currently with is not her husband. She still can't find it. Now, it is worth saying that in a kind of patriarchal society as this was, there's a strong chance that she is a victim here. I don't think we should read this and think, oh, she must just be easy. No, well, there's a strong chance that these blokes have not been looking out for her. Five husbands. She's being used by a sixth. It's not ideal. Maybe this is why she's coming to the well at noon. Noon is the hottest part of the day. You don't want to carry, let's say, five litres of water down a hill in the middle of the day. But I think she'd rather not bump into other people. She's been ostracised. Now, it seems unkind, doesn't it, when you read this and you think, Jesus, oof, that's a bit harsh. But I, I don't think it is unkind, actually, as I've thought about it for three reasons. First of all, don't forget, this is an abbreviated chat. There's a strong chance they've kind of talked for longer. And we don't see all the kind of smiles and the warmth coming out of him as we, as we read this. So there's a, there's a bit of that going on. Number two, he's already been talking to her for a long time. So it's not that he's like, look, I completely, I don't want anything to do with you. You're a terrible woman. You know, he's been chatting to her. And then he says, look, I, do kn- I know this. But the third one, which I think is actually the most important, is that Jesus knows exactly how to treat people. And just as he knew this kind of supernaturally about her, he also knew exactly what the right thing to say to her was. He knew how she'd react. So the next sentence is verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. She doesn't get defensive. She doesn't get hurt. She's like, yeah. Now, it's worth saying, this is probably not the right approach in conversations in general. You know, this is not something that we should copy off of Jesus. If you're chatting to your mate and you say, oh, go and fetch your girlfriend, come back. I have no girlfriend. You're right, you've asked many people to be your girlfriend and they've all said no. You're very right in what you say. That is that's not a kind thing to do. Jesus gets away with it because he knows exactly how to treat people. He's thoroughly loving. He knew how she'd react. Verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain up in the north. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Something that you get the impression that something she's been thinking about. Where is meaning religiously to be found? Where can we find God? Is it up here or is it with you guys? Who's right? I'd love to know. You're a prophet. Tell me. Which, by the way, I think this whole conversation reflects brilliantly on her. I think she's, I think she's quality. These are exactly the right kinds of questions you should be asking. And then Jesus comes up with the speech that contains kind of everything she needs to hear. From verse 21, Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they're the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. It's a dense little paragraph there. There's a lot going on. 
briefly, I think these are the main kind of headlines of what Jesus is saying. First of all, look, biblical religion is not about a place. It's no longer about a place. It's not about going here to find God or going there to find God. Rather, God comes to find you. Secondly, it's not something that you guys know. The Samaritans, you've, you've kind of got it wrong up until now. Thirdly, a time is coming when you will really, deeply and truly know God. And the Holy Spirit, who refreshes and who wells up to eternal life, will be sent to you guys as well. And fourthly, notice the word that's said three times in this paragraph. You will worship the Father, verse 21. Verse 23, true worshippers will worship the Father later on, for they're the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. True biblical religion is knowing God as your loving heavenly Father. We're kind of used to that. We're used to saying the Lord's Prayer, our Father, and we forget how revolutionary that is. That God is your dad. True religion in spirit and in truth is knowing that you have been adopted into God's family. That you are a child of God. Jim Packer, the theologian who died just a couple of years ago, says that adoption is the best bit about Christianity. He says it's not necessarily the most kind of foundational or uh, the kind of most crucial part of the gospel, but it is the best bit. Because you get eternal love, eternal security. You've got the guy, the God, sorry, who owns everything whose job it is to provide for you. And he'll do so forever. And he will never cast you out. You're in the family. You're a child of God. This is another one of his quotes as he wrote extensively on adoption. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. It is good to know God as Father. That's worth saying. Some people do struggle with the language of Father. It's, it's inevitable that many of us might interpret hearing about God the Father through our kind of own experiences, which there's a whole range of those. Some people think that whole language is kind of indicative of a, of a patriarchy. You shouldn't use the male language of God. And in academic circles, uh, in kind of different universities, people don't say kind of himself about God, but they now say God's self, a kind of neutral thing. Surely it's much better to think of it in that sense. But it's interesting that's not what Jesus does. And even with this woman, who I think it's fair to say has probably not had the best male role models ever. She's had at least five husbands. At, at best, she's been desperately unlucky. And yet Jesus says, what the Holy Spirit will do for you is show you that God loves you as a father. And that's a deeply satisfying thing, to have someone who knows you and loves you. The woman said, verse 25, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, yes, that's me. Here I am. Jesus makes it possible to know God. Partly because of his teaching, 
and his revelation, but also because what Jesus did is when he came to preach and to live, at the end of it, he died, taking all the misery, all the dissatisfaction, all the sin and sorrow on his shoulders. And he showed us that God loves us enough to die for us. And then he rose again from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God, sending the Holy Spirit to anybody who wants to be adopted, bringing them into the family, giving them a seat at the table, giving them an inheritance that will last. You and I, if we don't feel completely satisfied with this life, it's because we've noticed that this life has more to offer. And the big thing it has to offer is to find our place as children of God. Nothing else will satisfy on this earth. Conversation number one, knowing the Father satisfies. And conversation number two, you'll be delighted to hear, a bit more brief, reaping God's harvest satisfies. Reaping God's harvest satisfies. Because at this point, Jesus and the Samaritan woman, they are rudely interrupted. Verse 27, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? They think, gosh, this is weird. Why is he talking to a woman? They don't say anything because uh, it's better not to challenge Jesus. Let's just assume he knows what he's doing. Then... She goes, verse 28, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. The shame that she felt, the ostracization that she experienced is kind of gone. It's like a distant memory. And she goes straight into the town and she doesn't care anymore. Guys, you should meet this person. I think he's it. Do you notice that detail that she left behind the water jar? That was the very point of her going in the first place. But that doesn't matter anymore. She's found something better. Meanwhile, there's this conversation back with the disciples. And whereas the kind of controlling metaphor with the first one is thirst and water, now Jesus turns to a related topic, food and hunger, as he talks to them. Verse 31, his disciples urged him, meanwhile, Rabbi, eat something. He said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. They don't really know what he means. His disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? Verse 34, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. The thing Jesus loves to do more than anything is what he came to do and to obey his God and Father. He loves doing it. It's brilliant. And specifically, that work is doing what it is that we've just seen him doing. Loving people and caring for them. He loves it. It's better than food to him. This is what gets him up in the morning. This woman, these people are now headed down the road towards him. He loves that. This is what he's about. He's going to teach them. He's going to finish the work. So he will die a horrific death and rise again from the dead for them. And that's what he loves to do, for their sake. There used to be this kind of old-fashioned phrase, you may still hear it, kind of doing ministry, doing the ministry. 
don't know if you heard that in Christian circles. That sort of means doing religious things in kind of church, loving each other, serving each other. It actually just means service. Jesus loves doing ministry and serving other people. And the good news is there's a lot of food to go around. Don't you have a saying, verse 35? It's still four months till harvest. I think that saying means uh, it's like when you're putting something off and you're procrastinating. Uh, you know, harvest is miles away. Don't worry about that. If your housemate says, why haven't you done the washing up? You say, oh, behold, there is four months until harvest. You know, don't need to do it. So there's four months till harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. This world is stuffed full of people who are waiting to hear about Jesus. That's what the Bible says. This world is overflowing with people who could find deep satisfaction in Jesus. We just need to open our eyes. The harvest is everywhere. With people who not just might become Christians, if you like, but who might spend their lives finding deep satisfaction in knowing Jesus. And as if it's proof, we can look to the end of the story, verses 39 to 42. Many of the Samaritans of that town believed in Jesus because of the testimony. They all all did. Verse 41, because of Jesus' words over the next two days, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we don't just believe because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves and we know that this Jesus is the saviour of the world. Reaping the harvest satisfies. And I think this is a word for us as a church family. Are we dissatisfied with our Christian walk? Do we feel like this, this kind of should be better? Jesus is saying, reaping the harvest, having a role as a harvester, satisfies. There are nearly 8 million people in London. Most of them don't know Jesus. Imagine the joy of being part of something where people come to hear about him for the first time. Put their trust in him and live forever. That'd be good. Imagine doing something as ordinary and as spectacular as being part of a local church. Imagine being on youth or kids ministry and seeing young people grow up to serve Jesus for the rest of their lives. Being in a home group and welcoming someone really, really well who seems to kind of get stuff for the first time and thinks, this is brilliant. Imagine praying for a church plant that then flourishes somewhere else in the city. Imagine being part of a church plant. Imagine giving financially to co-mission. Imagine doing all of these kinds of things and then looking back at what happened, the harvest that comes out and think, I did that. Being filthy at the end of the day, being tired, being covered in grime, but looking at the pile of grain and thinking, I played a part in this happening. Jesus is saying, that's my food. It is a Christian truth that the more you serve, the bigger your joy is. The more we serve, the bigger our joy 
It's something we do together. Even now, verse 36, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Perhaps, if we find ourselves bored and dissatisfied with the Christian life, perhaps part of the answer is maybe we could be serving in different ways. Now, I want to be really careful about the way I say that for lots of reasons, but I think we tend to not be the best judges of kind of how well we're doing or kind of how we're serving at church. So there'll be some of us who think, you know, I never do anything. And the reality is, you're doing all kinds of stuff. You're doing loads. And what we need to do is, Jesus says, open our eyes and look at the harvest. Connect what we're doing in our kind of thousands of tiny, boring, myriad ways with the big picture of what God is doing in this world. We may just be kind of going to work, giving, praying, raising our kids. We're growing disciples who are going to serve Jesus for the rest of their lives. Or we may be at the other end of the spectrum. We think we're kind of doing so, so much. And actually, we just need to look at the harvest and think, there's a lot of need out there. And maybe we can serve it. Verse 35. I tell you, says Jesus, open your eyes, look at the fields. They're ripe for the harvest. And Jesus says, there is real satisfaction in doing that. Number one, knowing the Father satisfies. Number two, Reaping God's harvest satisfies. And I think as I close, the reason that works and is true is because those two points are not distinct things. They're not sort of two different things that Jesus is saying. They basically come together because a Christian is not a slave. A Christian is not somebody who quakes in fear at the name of God and then goes out to work and get really busy just in case God punishes them. Because God is our loving Heavenly Father who knows us and loves us and smiles upon us, therefore we serve and we'd love for other people to hear about Him too. They are completely connected. It's really good news. Why don't I pray for us? We no longer believe, they said, just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Father God, we thank you so much that Jesus meets our greatest needs, that knowing him is so far away from boring. We pray and ask that you would open our eyes, help us to see the harvest that is out there, help us to care deeply Help us to find joy in seeing people come to know Jesus. Amen.